0: This episode of Craft Sanity is sponsored by Allison Rosen, host of the Within a Quarter of an Inch podcast about quilting and the owner of Harmonica Goldfish, an Etsy shop featuring digital collage sheets perfect for paper crafting. Learn more at an com and harmonicagoldfish.etsy.com. This episode is also sponsored by Liz Scott, who creates her own whimsical fabric featuring hand-drawn patterns, and vibrant colors. Shop her designs at wonderfluffshop.etsy.com and find out more at lizscott.com. This episode is also sponsored by Marianne Loverm of Wabi Sabi Brooklyn. See how she turns humble elements into elegant jewelry at wabisabibrooklyn.etsy.com. <laughs> Everyone, welcome to episode 104 of the Craft Sanity Podcast. I'm Jennifer Ackerman-Haywood and I am pleased to be back this week with a chat with Sally Melville, the knitting extraordinaire. She is a knitwear designer, author, and really well-known knitting teacher. She goes around the country, actually international. She lives in Ottawa, Ontario, Canada. I know she'll be spending some time in West Michigan next week and the knitters here in town are pretty excited about that. I interviewed Sally recently for the art and craft column I write for the Grand Rapids Press here in town. We had a great conversation. She's so inspiring, and I think that's one of the things that makes her so highly sought after when it comes to teaching classes, and she gets a lot of invites, because she takes a really broad approach to knitting and kind of ties it to the larger world. So it's never just about knitting. She makes great connections, and you'll see what I mean when you listen to the chat. One of the other things that I really love about Sally's approach to knitting is that she explains things in such a thorough way that you don't feel stupid when you're trying to knit her patterns. I know I'm self-taught for the most part. I've picked up little bits here and there from more experienced knitters, but I've never really buckled down and taken an extensive course on knitting. I first figured out what to do by looking at a book, and it wasn't one of Sally's books, unfortunately, and I had... A little bit of... It was kind of a hair-pulling situation. And then I called my mom, you know, long distance. I was trying to have her walk me through some things, which is not really a good idea. That was before they had YouTube videos to help with these things. So as a self-taught knitter, what I really appreciate about Sally's approach is she explains everything you need to do, and she'll come into and teach a workshop. She doesn't leave room for mystery. So grab your knitting or another project if you haven't started knitting yet, but something tells me by the end of this interview you might be pulled into the wonderful world of knitting. I hope so. So settle in and let's get to that chat. Here we go. How did you get your start knitting?
1: I was taught in brownies when I was, and I remember I was seven and it just felt like that's what my hands were meant to do. I was really good at it right from the first day.
0: What did you make initially?
1: Well, we we were to make square just to learn, right? And I remember knitting on this little pink square and I kept asking my mother, is it four inches yet? Is it four inches yet? (laughs) I couldn't wait for it to be four inches and she didn't really know much but she knew how to measure four inches and uh, if we did a good job in our practice square, we got to make the yellow squares at the center of the afghan that was then going to be surrounded by less competent brown squares and given away to somebody someday. And my recollection is that I knit all the center yellow squares.
0: Oh, well, good for you. So you were, it, yeah. it, it, as you said, it just felt like something you were meant to do from the beginning. Exactly. And yeah. so when the other brownies went off and did other things, did you just keep knitting? I mean, is it something that you
1: didn't? I don't think I ever didn't have knitting on the go, even if it was just Barbie doll blankets and scarves. I was always knitting something, I think, my entire life. I don't remember ever not having something.
0: That's lovely, and to find it so young that's wonderful that you found yeah, your thing
1: so but you new. don't have to find it young, and I encourage people all the time. My daughter did start till she was twenty four it doesn't matter when you find it
0: right that's it'll true. find you that's true mm-hmm. at what point did you land yourself in that design class that you mentioned on your blog?
1: Uh, I was in my twenties i had ki- I had young children, and I had started, and I chose to be a stay at home mom but I was knitting to keep myself busy and I knit this really strange asymmetrical sweater and everywhere I went somebody wanted one so I now saw myself as a professional (laughs) I could (laughs) knit these things right Right, and I could uh, I could actually make money I would have a career and uh, after selling a few of them hand knit on larger yarn I thought well I should get a knitting machine thinking erroneously that it was somehow along the order of a photocopy or, you know, in-picture-out sweater. (laughs)
0: I've never made friends with my knitting machine yet.
1: No, 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 no. (laughs) We we were friends, but we we have a distant relationship now. (laughs) Um, So I, unfortunately, the only knitting machine available to me was a fine gauge. So then I had to learn real pattern drafting of, because the finer the yarn, the more fitted you tend to make your gown. So that's when I ended up in that class in Toronto trying to learn. Pattern drafting.
0: <laughs> and what you found, though, in the class is that people were kind of gravitating toward your, your asymmetrical sweater that you made. <laughs>
1: right, right. And I was passing notes. They would ask me about my sweater, and I would pass notes at the back of the class, really with the pattern, because it was so easy. And I was thrown out of class for passing notes. Okay, oh, But that was okay, because I realized not too far after that I actually knew more than I thought I did, and I would write my own design manual, and I would teach the class the way it was meant to be taught, in my mind. So I just started teaching in my local yarn shop.
0: And so you were still in your 20s at that point?
1: Yes, I was. Yeah, and
0: so, and, and it looks like you, you haven't really looked back. I mean, you just kind of kept going with that.
1: Yeah, well, I, I taught in my local yarn shop, um, taught a, design, a six-week design class, and when it was over, everybody kind of said, but what next? So then I started sitting in at the yarn shop two days a week. And if you came in and then paid me, you know, a fee, which I think was like $5 oh, a week, so I would design your sweater that you wanted with you and help you pick out the yarn and help you. And so that became an ongoing group. And then we started in Knitter's Guild and we had 140 people at the first meeting and we started bringing in teachers. And that's when my life changed because wow. the teachers would say, you should be designing for Vogue Knitting. You should be out there teaching. And they kind of dragged me kicking and screaming into what we now know of as the professional knitting world.
0: And so where were you living at the time when you started this group? I was in
1: Waterloo, Waterloo because I went to university in Waterloo and I kind of got stuck there.
0: Now, what did you, you, study, what did you study at university? I
1: studied English. Well, I started in math and, and that was not where I belonged. Although I, I have a bit of a math bent in my head, but getting a degree in math. You have to understand the University of Waterloo is the MIT of the North. This is where the BlackBerry uh, rim people okay. went to school. It's like one of the world's leading computer science schools, and that's what I was not good at. I was good at theoretical math. So anyway, after first year math not doing wonderfully well, I moved over to English, and I kind of did a joint major with English and psychology.
0: Okay, And were you knitting still at the time?
1: Oh, yes. Oh, totally. Always, always. Just not
0: thinking that was going to be your career, though, at that point.
1: Who thinks that's going to be their career? (laughs) Yeah, most people. But you know what? They tell you, I I worked in counseling services for a while, and part of the service at counseling services, not what I was involved in, but part of the service is career services. And one of the things I learned is that you should look back at what you were consumed with when you were seven years old because it helps to tell you what you kind of are, might be led towards later in life. And as a 7-year-old, I was always practicing, pretending to be a teacher, a designer, and a writer.
0: That's interesting.
1: And, duh, yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's, it's amazing what we already know about ourselves but just don't right. acknowledge. Yeah. Yeah, that's wonderful. Mm-hmm. So you were in your 20s though when you got on this path, which is still quite young. And as you said, yes. you know, for people that are older than that, um it's not over. You know, <laughs> you can always come Well, no, and, no, know, I,
1: I didn't even really land at the working part of that path until my 40s, early 40s.
0: Well, let's talk a little more about that. So you started teaching you all these people coming up to you saying, "Hey, you should be designing. You should be doing these things." Yeah. And then Yeah, now you I
1: now I'm in well into my 30s. Because okay. I had been teaching at my local yarn shop for quite a number of years before we even started the guild and then and then doing that before I got dragged out into the world. And then what happened is my husband got sick with cancer oh. and died. I, I had some invitations to travel and teach and, there, and I was just kind of putting my foot out into the big time when he got sick and died.
0: Oh, and
1: so then everything pulled back to a screeching halt, and I was no longer a stay-at-home mom. I was now a working mom, um, teaching at the university, teaching writing and running the study skills program at the University of Waterloo. And how many children so, do
0: you have? So you're I had
1: two. I had two teenagers at the time. So then I by and I wasn't really inclined to knit because I couldn't see color for a while. And uh, so I just really pulled back and concentrated on the work at the university until I found out that, you know, working 9 to 5 in a small office is my idea of hell. Yeah. (laughs) Couldn't do it. Yeah, it's so different
0: different than what you were doing.
1: Yeah, and different from what I'm doing now. It's just not my – I'm very organized and I'm very regular and all that stuff. But working 9 to 5 in a small office environment – I was never made to do. So did you even
0: have time to knit during that phase of your life?
1: No, not really, because I'd rush home and feed my kids and drive them to their drama competitions and music lessons and stuff and rush back to maybe a board meeting for the Arts Council or a guild meeting or back to the university to teach at night. I had no time at all.
0: Oh, geez. How long did you exist in that pattern?
1: I I worked full-time in that capacity for two years, and then it took me about three years to get out of that job the last year while well, I was replacing someone I was working one half day a week um, training someone to take over my position. Okay. So it was a wonderful job. I'm glad I did it, but it wasn't what I was meant to do.
0: Jeez, what an experience to go through the, all that. I'm not
1: ungrateful for it. The skills I learned there teaching study skills, learning, remembering, creative problem solving, time management, I bring that to my knitting. I love it when knitting cross-references with brain function or quantum physics or world economics, and, and I can bring that to my teaching and to the meditations in my book, and I think that's one of the things that people have always appreciated about the books, that I always connect knitting, I think, to what is known, we think of as a larger picture.
0: Right, and I think it gives it a lot more substance than just, here's a pattern, you know, and that's it. Yeah,
1: exactly. So that's
0: wonderful that you're able to do that. So when you left the university job, how did you kind of phase yourself back into the world of knitting?
1: Well, I was still at the university when my daughter asked me to write or to make a sweater for her boyfriend turning 18 she was 16 so it was two years after my husband died so I made this sweater out of leftovers I was determined not to spend any money but I was also determined to make it beautiful and I was literally halfway through that sweater when my boss at the university called and said we really don't want you to leave this job and I said no I have to and he said what are you going to do and I looked down at the sweater I was making out of leftovers and said I'm going to write a book on using up leftovers for knitters somebody will buy it And that's that's how it changed.
0: (laughs) So just in that moment, you decided that that's what you were going to do.
1: That's wonderful. Well, I decided I was going to try and write a book on using up leftovers. And it got published and got great reviews, actually did really, really well. And the invitation from my publisher then was, what do you want to do next? And I said, I want to do a learn to knit book.
0: Now, have you been with the same publisher the whole way?
1: No, um, I was supposed to do five books with XRX, the uh, Knit, Stitch, Pearl, Color, Texture, and Design, but our relationship broke down after color, oh. and, uh, and so I don't really know about the end of the series. Okay. It just, I just lost control of my product, and they stopped speaking to me when I asked for more control over my product. So. It was sad. Yeah. I'm with Potter. It, it, the last book I did with my daughter was with Pottercraft,
0: and it's beautiful. It's lovely. It's wonderful. Yes, it book. is, and it was a joy. I talked to a lot of authors, and it is one of those things where it's such a dream to have a, a book published, but at the same time, it's um it's a piece of of the of the author. You know, it's really you put so much effort and energy into it, and it's um, one of those things where sometimes not having complete control is challenging at times. But it looks like things worked out.
1: As I said after the color book, you can go into the world with one book where it wasn't your decisions and you can say this is not me, but if you produce another one that looks like that with those same under those same circumstances, then it is you because you allowed it to happen and right, I can't right. allow it to happen again.
0: Well, I think that's I, mean, I think there's a lot of people out there that are hearing you say that it helps reaffirm some of their own beliefs because there's a lot of people I've yeah. interviewed some very successful people who've self-published even
1: and yes. um, Talk about how yeah. we'll
0: never go back, you know. But yeah, um, yeah, I know. Yeah, that's
1: one of those fences in life that once you jump over it, you wonder what took you so long. But it's a hard one to. It's a hard move to make.
0: Oh yeah, because it involves quite a bit of funding and all, all yeah. sorts of things. But well, why don't we talk a little bit about? Um, so you did that the first book, and and it kind of it was that first book what really put you on the map? Would you say?
1: Yeah, the Styles book was a very unusual book for the time, and it filled a niche. And I was invited to do a lot of teaching because of it and I thought oh well I can feed my family this way this is fine and by that point by the time the book was actually out the kids were off in university so I was free to travel and I had the energy and I was seeing color again And
0: sorry to interrupt but when you said that about seeing color yeah. was, that just, was that part of the grieving process where yeah. you were just closed it's off it's not
1: uncommon it's not uncommon as part of the grieving process now what do you, you mean by really... that
0: exactly when you couldn't see color like...
1: well some people literally only see black and white. I could see color, but bright colors were assaulting. I would put on an outfit, and I thought I looked like a clown because the colors were so bright. So I found myself only wearing very dark brown or very dark green. Um, And if I tried to put colors together, I'd actually have to go to another artist and say, do these colors go together? Because everything to me just looked outrageously bright and demanding, chaotic.
0: And had you, yeah. you been someone who wore a lot of bright colors before?
1: Yeah, 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 for sure. And I am again, <laughs> but I wasn't.
0: How long did it take you? To, to to
1: um, I would say it was about five years, yeah. two years where I really felt blinded, but five years before I started wearing, feeling more comfortable in what I was wearing.
0: And is, was this a sudden thing with the cancer diagnosis, or did you know for a while that he was ill?
1: No, we. Got, the diagnosis was... Very surprising because this was a very healthy-looking man. If you looked at him, you would not have believed that he was sick. And at that point, they said six months to a year, and he died in five months. Oh my but gosh. he didn't look the least bit sick when we got what, the diagnosis. What
0: kind of cancer was that?
1: It was called adenocarcinoma. It's a carcinoma that finds it starts in glandular tissue, also known as non-smokers. Um and it ten- the problem with it is that it tends to metastasize very quickly. So by the time you find it, it's usually in three places, oh, geez. which is which is not good news ever.
0: Oh my goodness! Wow! Mm-hmm. And so five months later, you're finding yeah. yourself the mother of two children, trying to make a go of all this. My goodness! Right. And, but it sounds like you pull you you do you think knitting? How much of of the knitting do you think helped you? Because I know you didn't knit for a while after that. But did knitting help bring you back? You think to
1: Dealing. oh yeah it gave me a life it gave me a wonderful wonderful life and even if i weren't doing it i can't imagine a day without it yeah you know it's a great joy to just sit in front of a good movie or listen to a book on cd and knit for four hours i i can't go through a day without it i guess i'm an addict <laughs>
0: <laughs> well you know what? it's a wonderful thing to be addicted to
1: yeah um, yeah
0: and so if you had to choose yeah it's the lesser of all the evils there and now you're in, at university, you study English, and you said also – was there some psychology in there as well? Yes, okay. educational
1: psychology, right. So
0: when – and just given your education um, and your, your background in this and in your teaching, I imagine that your own personal experience of having knitting being kind of a healing thing for you um, – I mean, this probably comes up a lot in your teaching because I know there's a lot of us, we all have our issues that we've had to deal with in life where you go through some rough times. And I know for me, making things um, has always been a way for me to cope with any kind of stress or hardship ever that I've encountered. For you, I mean, does this come up a lot with students when people come out to see you and talk to you? Oh,
1: absolutely. Absolutely. Always. I've heard wonderful, wonderful stories about how knitting helped them through traumatic events.
0: Do you think we're finally to a point where knitting is valued in society for what it really should? I mean, because I think sometimes things that are associated with, even though men used to do a whole lot of knitting, you know, historically, um, a lot of times still if it's something that's been traditionally the woman's work, if you want to use those terms, which I I really don't like, sometimes things are undervalued and, and devalued. And do you think that knitting is finally to the point where, People, you know, they get it, you know, they understand the value of it and the the, the healing. Not
1: the world at large, no, no, absolutely not.
0: How close are we do you think to a more wide I don't think we're
1: gonna get there until the men pick it up. Because uh. if it if it doesn't cross gender lines, it just doesn't get appreciated. Sadly enough. There and there are just too many people. That means, you know, there's this huge bulk of the world's population that doesn't do it, doesn't get it, thinks it would be embarrassing to try it. And that spills over on us.
0: I mean, you've seen more men come out to your classes and, take the, in, and study Um, in No, the it's about
1: the same proportion it always was. Maybe yeah. one in a hundred, yeah. you know, at best. No, it's really low, and I don't get it. I did write a meditation in the Pearl Book, Why Don't More Men Knit. I don't understand. If we think of the domestic arts, knitting's almost the last holdout. Men cook. They take care of children. Mm-hmm. Even weaving is okay. Um, there's something about knitting. And, you know, in the Middle Ages, the women were not allowed in the Knitter's Guild. They were men only. Which, so I, can, I
0: it's hard to even fathom that now.
1: Yeah. My yeah. goodness.
0: Yeah, because it's completely reversed. I mean, of course, men are yeah. allowed, but they're just not there.
1: No. Yeah, so. No. And I just think it's their loss, <laughs> you know? Yeah. How can anybody watch a football game without knitting? I don't know. <laughs>
0: I am in full agreement with you there. I never even yeah. watch anything without be- doing another no. project. Yeah, my hands have to be busy, whether it's knitting, crocheting, something. I'd like to move to the book that just came out, the one that people are okay. seeing that's fresh, um, uh, was re- released it was early this year, correct? That yeah, in out. March. Yeah, yeah, with, with the Mother Daughter Knits book um, by yeah. you and your daughter, and it's 30 designs to flatter and fit. And yeah. tell me about this. I know you write in the foreword of the book how this thing came to be, but for people who don't have the benefit of having the book right in front of them. Can you share a little bit about the inspiration for this?
1: Well, I was looking for another publisher when I realized things had broken down with XRX, and I had an idea for a book. Actually, it was a Christmas book that I wanted to do. And I went to a number of publishers, and when I went to the acquisitions person at Pottercraft, I happened to mention that my daughter had started knitting and teaching and designing and had done some designs that I would like to include in my Christmas book. And as I recall it, this person levitated off her chair when she heard (laughs) that my daughter knit. It had been her dream, she said, to do a two-generation knitting book because we do, my daughter and I, represent the big bulge in the demographics of knitting. And so she said, do you think your daughter would do a book with you? And I thought, gee, I'll call her and ask. (laughs) How do you think that phone conversation went? Um, No, she was thrilled. And so at that point, uh, it was Random House's idea, so I knew then that I was publishing with them because they had this wonderful idea, how could I not do a book with my daughter? And then they said they thought that the Christmas book was too small a book. They wanted a book with a bigger focus. And they knew I taught this class on finding your perfect sweater length and the right style for you, mm-hmm. and did I think I could incorporate that into the book? And so that's what happened. That's how it evolved. Well,
0: that's wonderful, and so now you have this thing that um, is not only a beautiful book for the knitters out there, the mothers and daughters and everybody else who wants just some fun patterns to to get through and tackle, but also kind of a record of your relationship with your daughter, which is really beautiful, Yeah,
1: which is really great.
0: I mean, so this is not only a knitting book, this is a family heirloom, (laughs) which has got to be kind of cool to have produced something like that. Very
1: much. Yeah, we are more fortunate than most and very grateful for it.
0: And is this um, the same your the daughter you wrote the book with? Is this the same woman who just had a baby?
1: Ten day old baby girl. Oh wow!
0: Yeah. And is this her first? Yeah. Yes. Oh, how exciting! Well, you have to share our congratulations uh, with your daughter. Thank you. To give birth to a baby and a book in the same year is no small feat. That's pretty amazing, (laughs) isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) So what do you – I know you're going to be in Grand Rapids uh, in September here. And so it sounds like looking at your schedule, it looks like you do a fair amount of traveling around uh, to teach. I do. I've cut
1: back a little bit because of these new grandchildren. So I'd like more time with my family over the coming year. But, yes, that's what I do. I travel and teach and spread the word.
0: So what can people expect? Because it looks like, from what I've read about your workshops, these are not traditional just come and learn a knitting technique. It sounds like you you go beyond that, drawing, as you do in your books, drawing, kind of making connections to the outside world uh, and knitting. Yeah. So can yeah, you talk a little bit that. about your approach
1: to teaching? Well, um, yeah, that's my approach to teaching, make it as large as possible, make as many connections as possible. I also am a little different than some of my colleagues I have colleagues that um, kind of divided between two different camps. One is people who are tied to experts in a particular tradition like Orenburg lace or Latvian knitting or mm-hmm. Ganzes, and that's not me. And then there are other people who are very advanced and wonderful teachers at a particular technique like modular knitting, and that's not me. So the difference with me is that I teach kind of, all techniques like casting on and increases and decreases and buttonholes and stuff like that and that not, aren't tied, tied to a particular tradition or a particular way of knitting. And I also, um, the other so one of the classes I'm teaching in Grand Rapids is called Essential Skills for the Self-Taught Knitter. Everything, everybody needs to know for every sweater they ever make. And then the other class I'm teaching there is called Making the Most of Your Yarn Collection. So it's all the skills... That I brought to bear for my first book, how to make really beautiful sweaters out of little bits of this and that. How to put different colors, different weights, different fibers, different textures together and make something really beautiful.
0: So you're covering it all.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's a pretty comprehensive set of classes that they chose in Grand Rapids.
0: Well, and I think it's fun, too, because then people can kind of come in and it sounds like you don't have to have years and years of experience to benefit in fact these are great classes to take early in your knitting uh
1: you know right it sounds like right right um not I never teach classes that are very advanced they're all kind of beginner intermediate to advanced so I've had real beginner knitters in my essential skills class and and occasionally we might do something that's a little beyond them but that's okay they'll pick it up you know, someday when they're ready. But I've also had people in that class, the Essential Skills for the Self-Taught Knitter, more than once I've had people come up to me and say, I've taught at a knitting shop for 15 years and not one thing you said today did I already know. Wow. Because I I think what I do differently is I go into the why of things. Why would you use this cast-on rather than another? So I, I never teach just a technique without, you know explaining it ad nauseum, <laughs> all the permutations and combinations.
0: It sounds like you, you meet people where they are as opposed to say, you know, kind of That's lording. That's what I
1: would choose to do. Yeah, yeah,
0: instead of lording over as an expert. Not saying that everyone's teaching that way. I mean, I'm not going to imply no, no, that. No, but I no, think no, it's, But I think it's a great approach because sometimes people are just embarrassed. They're, they're trying to figure out, okay, how do they make the buttonhole? And it seems right. really, really like a, something everybody knows. Um, there could be half the class has no idea, and you you kind of eliminate the need for them to ask the question, which is a relief to some because some are shy about that kind of thing, you know?
1: Right, and and they should. It's not their fault. Knitting magazines are trying to save page space, so all they are allowed, all you are allowed to say in a knitting pattern in a magazine is space five buttonholes evenly. That's all, oh. that's all you're allowed to say.
0: Right? So, if, you're just, if it's your first time making buttonholes, button you're yeah. really out of luck.
1: Yeah. You don't know what you're doing. And that's got to be frustrating. Pick up and knit 100 stitches around the neck edge. You know, how helpful is that? Right. If you've never done it before, <laughs> it's,
0: it's very, right. yeah. And so, that's right. got to be a little frustrating for you as a designer, too, when you're um, trying to get, you're submitting work to be published, knowing that it might be presented in that fashion. When, yeah. you, when your tendency is to explain it so people, everyone can yeah. do it.
1: Well, that's the way I write books instead of contributing to magazines <laughs> because I have this notion that I can set my own rules when I write a book, which isn't always true, but I can, you know, I can fight the good fight in, in defense of having things said the way I think they should be said.
0: Yeah. Well, I I think it's great that you're, you're doing that. It, it comes across as authentic then. And, you know, Sally's way yeah. of teaching, you know, yeah. and if you can yeah. do this, you might as well do it your way, you know, it's right. it a whole lot more fun. Right. So how many books, this one that you did with your daughter, and does she pronounce her name Katie? Is that how she says her name? Katie Caddy. 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 Okay. Caddy yeah, Melville. it's from William
1: Ledbetter. Faulkner's Sound and the Fury. Oh, cool. Katie. Caddy.
0: Caddy. Okay, so Caddy Melville Ledbetter is her last name? Yes. Okay. Yeah. And so this, this is your latest book, and how many books does this bring to your total? How many for books? me, it's five. For her, and for her, this is her first one. Yeah, We're expecting a follow-up, you know, from
1: the two of you. Yes, I know. I know. <laughs> I think there will be. I,
0: well, I think it's just, you know, one of the things that was so great about this book is that I thought it was really interesting just to see what the two of you came up with. And yeah. just the appreciation for each other's work and also kind of bouncing, like, kind of um, ideas that seemed to kind of you kind of bounce ideas off each other and to see how these materialized. In, um, yeah.
1: But yeah. form is really fun. At the same time that we bounced ideas off each other, we left each other completely alone.
0: Right. And see, that's the part yeah. where I think that was really great, too, because you're established. And um, mm-hmm. I'm sure it would have been very easy for any established knitwear designer to kind of say, okay, this is how it's going down, sister, you know. Yeah, no way. And the readers would have saw that, you know. And yeah. one of the things that was really apparent and I think really makes this beautiful is that the relationship and the respect you have for each other's work and I and creative ideas which came through when I read the I love the oh, fact good. That there, well I love the fact that besides patterns um there's there's just a lot of there's some commentary not loads of it but enough to kind of get people uh, give people a little slice of life when you ask each you know you both answer questions throughout the book right um about right. just you know your knitting why you do this and your kind of your approaches to it and um, which is really fun to read. So it's it almost, it's kind of one of those books that even if you don't have any yarn available to you, um, it's not maddening because there's other things to keep your mind occupied in this. Oh, good. In this, in this book. So I really enjoyed <laughs> That's that. Wonderful. And I think the um, sizing information at the beginning is really great too because I think when people are starting to make garments, especially at the beginning, uh, that can be very tricky. And a lot of times. Yes. I I used to skip the gauge swatch, which I don't do that anymore because um, once you skip it, you make a lot of mistakes and waste a lot of time. Um, That's right, but yeah, I thought that i, I think your approach was wonderful, and um yeah, I'm just trying to to find out you know what else that you guys have planned. Do you have something already in the works? I, I know you guys have been very busy, you know, uh
1: should... yes, we do, yeah, we've been making babies, um yeah. yeah, we do have something else in the works and and Potter is working on it now, so they they have the work and they have the patterns, they are figuring out the focus, oh, so okay. there'll be another book it'll be out next year, but it would be presumptive of me to say what the book is about because they're figuring that out. Okay.
0: Okay, well, th- that's good. news. We're just going to hang our hats on the good news that there's something else there coming. There you go. That's wonderful. I do have a question about, I know that in the book you talk about how you had uh, taught your daughter how to knit
1: mm-hmm. when she was a
0: child, and it just never, it wasn't like you when you were seven and you just clicked and never let go of your knitting. Um, for her, she right. came back to it in her 20s. What advice do you have for parents who might be ravenous knitters themselves, and they want to introduce this to their children. What advice my do you My
1: mistake, my mistake, I gave her yarn and needles, and I cast on 20 stitches, and I taught her how to knit, and my mistake was to say, you know, just knit, do whatever, this is how you do it, just count every once in a while, because you want to sort of kind of have close to 20 stitches. My daughter is such a perfectionist, if she had 21 or 19, she would rip it out.
0: Um, I should never have given so her a number. she spending a lot of time ripping things
1: out. Right. Don't give them any number. Don't give them any preconceived notion of what it should look like. If I had not given her that number, she probably would have knit as a young child. Yeah interesting and I've taught knitting to seven and nine-year-olds and you know you've got to be really prepared to teach those children but then you've got to be prepared that everything you thought you wanted to teach them just goes out the window because once you put it in their hands and they make it their own then they're going to do their own thing and you just let them go don't don't stand over them don't tell them this is right this is wrong let them go and leave them on their own
0: just kind of see what happens
1: yeah, they'll come they'll they may produce yards and yards and yards of crazy stuff that doesn't look like anything, but to them <laughs> it's a beautiful scarf and their grandmother will love it, right?
0: And their grandmother and will love it. Eventually.
1: And yeah. Yeah. And eventually they'll see it has holes and decide it shouldn't have holes. But until they notice it, nobody should encourage them to be looking for it.
0: Well, I think that's great advice because I think sometimes if we've practiced something for years and we know exactly the way to do it, the tendency is to to tell our kids you know, okay, you got to you gotta rip that out and start again. And, um, right. yeah, just letting them go sounds like that's um, the best way. What age right. do you recommend? Is seven a good age? Oh,
1: seven seven is a good age. That's the age when they're hand-eye coordination, six or seven. About the age that you would start children taking piano lessons. That's okay. about the right time. Okay.
0: And it's it's a soothing thing for them, too. It kind of calms kids down a bit, Absolutely. too. Absolutely.
1: You know, I taught knitting once, and this lovely little boy, it was a, a group of children, and this lovely little boy turned to us at the end of the day and said, Thank you for teaching me how to knit. Now I have something to do at my brother's hockey games.
0: Oh, yeah. So this is a child that had to wait around at yeah. his brother's hockey games, and now it wouldn't be yeah. such a pain for him to do that. That's right. great. What a gift. Yeah, yeah. So you've had this long career as a knitwear designer and author and teacher, and what has been the most rewarding aspect of that for you?
1: Oh, other than getting to do a book with my daughter, which is more than a dream come true, it's just wonder the stories I hear from people and the joy that it brings to their lives validates mine. Um, it's kind of obvious. You know, when you get out among people... And you've got a captive audience they love. Not a captive audience. They're there willingly. Right. right? They choose to pay their money and come to your class. Not like teaching in school where they have to be there. Right. And so they choose to be there and they leave with everything they wanted and, you know, thrilled and empowered and sometimes with tears in their eyes. That makes it all worth doing.
0: Well, because you talk about awakenings during your,
1: your, your sessions that
0: you've witnessed some people, you know, having these awakenings and to empower people to kind of find like discover their their these talents within themselves must be yes. just phenomenal. Yes. Yes. Do you have any stories you can share like anything that stands out as being like one of the most distinct awakenings you ever witnessed?
1: Um yeah, I teach a class on creativity and I was teaching it in uh one of the one of the San Juan Islands and it was open to weavers and it was open to the public in general not just knitters. And I gave, the, I gave my presentation on creativity and a woman came up to me afterwards in tears and she said, I have to thank you. I went to a talk on creativity at the library last week and all it was was a you know, retrospective of the world's great artists and how creative they were and how wonderful they were. And she left, she said, feeling that she could never do this, that it wasn't within her and she felt so distanced from creativity and the creative process, but there was a part of her that wanted it so badly. And then she came back and she saw my talk and she said, you told me how it's available to everybody, how easy it is and how important it is and how I can access it. And it was just, you know, it was the opposite side of the coin. Wow. And she was so grateful. I have had people come and tell me how they're knitting. You know, I talk often about knitting through traumatic times and there was a woman came up to me and told us, how knitting had saved her. A woman, at, she had a very sick child who died, a five-year-old child. Who oh, died. no. And at the hospital, a nurse taught her to knit, and she said she didn't know how she would have gotten through it all if she hadn't had the knitting. Wow. And she shared that with our class. Uh, it was a pretty, pretty profound moment. Yeah. So it's, it's hard to watch people not take knitting seriously because it's it's so profound for some people.
0: Yeah, and I think it'd be great. I guess they got to come out with some kind of official scientific studies or something, which would not—I don't think it would be hard at all to prove that. Oh, they did.
1: Did they? Yeah, come and out I'm with something? stealing from Stephanie Pearl McPhee here, but I'll oh, you, you know what, Stephanie
0: did. Did talk about that. Yeah. You heard that no, from go, on, group go in ahead. in Cambridge, right? Yeah, go ahead. Go
1: ahead and share okay. it. Because... So the, this group in Cambridge had three groups of people watch the film of a traumatic event. One group did nothing while they watched. One group talked to each other while they watched. And one group engaged in a repetitive motion, mindless, like keyboarding task. The people who were least traumatized were the people who were keyboarding. The people who were most traumatized, surprisingly, were the people who were talking to each other. And the reason for that, the researchers deduced, is that we have two brains functioning all the time. One is our reptilian brain and the other is our reasoning brain. And our reptilian brain is all about survival. I'm going to live, I'm going to die. It doesn't know the difference between what's happening to you or to me, what's happening yesterday, what's happening on film, what might happen Have happened 20 years ago. It's just all about live or die. And that brain is quieted when you do a repetitive task. So you can watch this film, and your reasoning brain says, Well, that's a terrible thing, and I'm really sorry for those people, but that is not likely to happen to me because the I'm going to die brain is quiet. When you're talking to people, your reasoning brain is engaged, and the only brain running loose to react to this movie is your reptilian brain thinking, I'm going to die, I'm going to die. And, of course, once you have that thought and you start speaking it to other people, they probably exacerbated the situation by bouncing off each other. You know how right. when you watch the news with someone, it's, right. worse,
0: it's far worse sometimes. Right.
1: Yeah. So what the researchers said was they now could see the value in repetitive tasks like uh, during times of stress, like a rosary or worry beads or something like knitting. And then they said, well, we can see that it would be, you know, easily enough easy to recommend that people carry rosary beads or, or worry beads during times of stress. I guess it really isn't practical to expect people to carry knitting with them at all times. What? <laughs> what are you, you know, do you not have anybody on your staff who's knitting who could pull yeah, her socks out of her purse? I
0: can't imagine that. Yeah, because you can usually find a knitter in every organization. Like without... Exactly. They oh, didn't even geez. ask. Yeah, because that's ridiculous. I think it's yeah. actually, I mean, I don't go anywhere without a project of some kind. Of, of course. Bag. I mean, it's they didn't just... even ask. Yeah.
1: Ridiculous. After well, all that thoughtful work they did, they didn't even ask.
0: I'm glad Stephanie took them to task on that because I do remember yeah. that she, um... <laughs> well, it's, it's one of those things where I think there almost needs to be some more the studies to kind of get – because it seems like it almost takes, like, this official – what we already know. I mean, if you knit or you do any kind of repetitive thing where you're making something, just what that does for me – I know for me as a person, I mean, it helped me through – I lost my first baby to miscarriage, and I thought that I – was never, I I, I kind of had this, this, this I, I just was trying to imagine like what my life was going to be like, because you have this plan, you know, you're a little girl pushing your baby carriage and you think right. that, you know, when you get, grow up, you get married and you, you do everything that you're supposed to do, you know, <laughs> and the order yeah. that you're supposed to do it, you know, according to all the, yeah. you know, so I followed all those rules and then, you know, I got to the point where I wanted to start a family and it didn't happen for me right away. And I was just really shattered, but at the same time, Um, I had been working on a baby blanket, you know, when I found out I was pregnant, and I started knitting this blanket, and I was very excited, and I had to put that project away, because it was just too hard, I couldn't keep knitting baby blanket, you know, I put that away. Um, yeah. But then I pulled out a different knitting project and started okay. working on some other things, more for me, not for babies yeah. or anything else. And then, you know, I, I'm a weaver, so I you know, did my weaving and I did my crocheting and I, I do a lot and quilting. I do a lot of different things, but I was constantly keeping myself busy and I really crafted my way out of. A very dark time because I just, it's like everywhere you look, people are pushing babies and strollers and it's like, you want something so desperately and you're not sure you're going to actually get to have it. And I had to find a way to heal myself so I could function in the the world, you know? And, and for me, it wasn't laying on the couch of a psychologist, which for some people that really is what they need to do. For me, it was, I just kept making things, you know, and healing myself and giving myself time to grieve. Those of us who know how to knit, I think we're, we're already equipped with something. We have kind of something in our little survival tool belt that others yes. don't have because yes. it is such a healing thing.
1: And I think Yes, and, you know, people say to me, I just knit from a pattern. I'm not creative. I just knit from a pattern. After my husband died, I knit from patterns. I knit from other people's patterns. I did not have the wherewithal to design or put colors together, but I was still knitting, and it helped me.
0: It's that process of, yeah. um, and I think yeah. for me, I wasn't doing any kind of original off-road creativity experiments with my knitting after that either. I, right. I just stuck to patterns and I needed to go through that process. And, yeah. you know, you come out the other side and I, I have not done any studies myself, but I think that it would have been much more difficult for me to put my life back together and just kind of get back on track if I didn't have, if I didn't know how to do the knitting, crocheting, and those things, because I really felt like yeah. it helped me so much. Yeah. So
1: Well, and in your email, I'll just end by saying this. In your email, you asked me about the future of knitting, and you know, whether or not we do it to help ourselves through traumatic times, there is evidence to suggest that globalization will end, because globalization is based on cheap offshore labor and cheap transportation, both of which are finite resources. And So when globalization ends, we will go back to local economies. We will grow our own food. We will have a steel plant in our, you know, area that will make what we need. And instead of buying 14 sweaters made in Hong Kong, we will knit three sweaters. We will go back to making our own clothing.
0: I can't wait for that time. I really... Well, yeah,
1: I see that as a good thing, as long as we're prepared for it.
0: Right. Well so, I do have concerns um, about that. I don't think we're prepared for it at all. But I, I th- those of us not on a
1: big scale. Those of us yeah. who knit are prepared. <laughs> we're prepared. Other That's people
0: right. are not prepared for that. Well I really appreciate the time that you spent with me today. Thank you. Well, I really appreciate Sally taking the time to talk to me. I know I contacted her in the midst of a really crazy week. For those of you who don't know how to knit. I hope this inspires you to get knitting. I know it's really helped me a lot to know how to knit, so I'd highly recommend it. And I also recommend that you pick up a copy of Mother Daughter Knits, 30 Designs to Flatter and Fit by Sally Melville and her daughter, Caddy Melville Ledbetter, because it is a great book. I love the, the projects in here are really nice. I love just the dialogue between mother and daughter. It's really a fun book to have. I'd also like to take a moment to thank my sponsors. I was very fortunate to have three this week, which I really appreciate. It's helping keeping that momentum going here at the Craft Sanity Headquarters. So thank you so much to Allison, Liz, and Mary Ann. Appreciate it. If you could click over to CraftSanity.com and click on those sponsor links and visit the folks who are keeping the Craft Sanity boat floating, I really appreciate uh, the support of listeners and those sponsors. So special thanks to Allison Rosen. She's a fellow podcaster. Her podcast is called Within a Quarter of an Inch and it's all about quilting. She's also the owner of Harmonica Goldfish, an Etsy shop featuring digital collage sheets, perfect for paper crafting. So head over there and check that out. Uh there's some really interesting imagery that all collected there. Head over to within-a-quarter-of-an-inch.wordpress.com to learn more about the podcast, and you can visit harmonicagoldfish.etsy.com for more information about those digital collage sheets. Liz Scott also sponsored this episode of Craft Sanity. She creates really fun and whimsical fabric. Love the fabric. It's hand-drawn. The colors are really vibrant, and it's just a whole lot of fun. So you can shop her designs over at wonderfluffshop.etsy.com and find out more at lizscott.com. I'd also like to thank Marianne Lowerm at Wabi Sabi Brooklyn for sponsoring this episode of Craft Sanity. I really appreciate it. Uh, head over to her shop to see these really cool... She takes pennies and coins and decoupages them and really transforms these everyday elements that we have in our pockets and the bottom of our purse into these really precious jewelry pieces. So... Go check that out. I think you're going to enjoy it. Again, you can find Marianne's Creations at wabi sabibrooklynetsycom Thanks to all of you for supporting the podcast. It really means a lot, and it's very gratifying to have your support. So thank you, thank you, thank you. I really appreciate it. If you would like to be a sponsor of an upcoming show, feel free to click over on the sponsors link, and you'll likely hear from... My husband, Jeff, who handles all the advertising stuff for me, and uh, we'll get you into the mix. I'll do a brief after show about my first week as an Etsy seller. And uh, if you'd rather not, feel free to get on with your day. I'll never know if you stop listening here, so you won't offend me, so don't worry. I'll be back next week with an interview with a pattern designer. And this will be really fun. This was someone I actually get to meet in person. So I'm going to leave you a little bit in suspense, but come back next week. For another show and uh, we'll have some fun. In the meantime, craft sanity, my friends. It works for me. Okay, so I have an Etsy shop now. My goodness. I am kind of like learning. I've learned so much in the last week that I feel like, um, yeah, just information is spilling out my ears. It's been Quite a week. I uh, opened my online craft sanity shop last week and um, started selling these oak peg looms that I've been making. And uh, this whole thing has been kind of a whirlwind because I decided in July to make these things, partnered with a local woodworker, and started out with make pot holder size, and then uh, have I think about eight sizes ranging from like a little mini pot holder Christmas ornament size. All the way up to, well, now the latest one is I added a placemat size last week. Um, there's a rug size, a 30 by 38 size rug loom. So I'm having tons of fun. Thank you to all of you who ordered during that first week because it was kind of scary. You know, you post things in, a, in an online shop where people can see whether or not you sell your work. <laughs> and I'm thinking, I might not sell anything. And that happens. It was a reality. I, I might not sell anything. And... The loom started selling, so thank you very much. I really appreciate the support. So I'm going to keep making looms, and I'm going to just kind of keep listing them. We had a little bit of a holiday interruption with um, Labor Day. Dan, the woodworker, went on vacation. Um, I'm kind of a, like, staycation kind of girl. I end up staying in town most of the time. I actually did quite a bit of work on Labor Day, which is kind of funny. (laughs) kind of defeats the purpose of labor day but anyway i'll be restocking the store and get more things listed and i just have to say though having this shop has really given me a whole new appreciation because i i mean i already respected people who are making a living off their artwork or you know supplementing their income with handmade goods that they're selling online but i just have to say that it's been just all the things you have to suddenly do you know you have to order boxes, having to come up with a system that works so it's not just total chaos and confusion in the kitchen, which has turned into like shipping and receiving. I'm having a blast. I'm having a lot of fun. And should the loom business end up drying up soon, I'm going to be okay because I have looms now in all the sizes that I wanted. (laughs) And I'll make sure I have enough for Christmas presents. And I'll be good to go. But I am so thankful for the support and the response that I've gotten. I've also become a little paranoid, though, because as any of you who have Etsy shops know, when you put your stuff online, you're just kind of bracing for the copycat. Because the photography, you want to have good photos to sell your work, but at the same time, if the photos are too good, it's an invitation for someone to come along and copy what you're doing. And um, I haven't noticed any copycats yet, but, you know, I kind of, from all the people I've interviewed about, having Etsy shops and putting their work online. It happens. So I'm kind of expecting that that's going to happen and that's going to be maddening. But um, I had an experience at the local artist market this past weekend where this woman came up and she was taking a picture with a little digital camera. But she was doing so like she had her arms crossed across her chest and she was taking, snapping a photo under her elbow, like kind of like trying to nonchalantly take pictures of these looms. And I said something to her. So I'm kind of like this normally cheerful woman in the apron under the craft sanity stuffed felt sign happily talking to people about looms. And I kind of like – I was in conversation with someone I had written a column about who I hadn't seen in a while. And um, (laughs) I said, excuse me, and I said, you know, "Um, what are you doing to this woman who's taking these pictures? And she kind of – oh, I'm just taking pictures. And I said, of what? Like for what? Who are you? You know, and she's like, well – Just for me, you know, I said, well, you really, you really need to ask, please, if you're going to do that. Because the thing that really made me mad about it is it was, like, kind of like she was kind of, like, sneaky taking the pictures. Like, she wasn't even looking through the camera. It was, like, just under her arm taking these pictures. And if you're taking pictures like that and you're not, like, a private investigator or, well, this would have been a bad private investigator because she wasn't very discreet about it. It just really annoyed me because I thought, geez, wait a minute. You know, I worked really hard to come up with this. And, of course, I didn't invent the holder loom. I'm not claiming to. But I go up to people. As a professional journalist, I go up and will frequently – you know, I always introduce myself to the artist. You know, like I just made a pass two weeks ago at the – at the market, I went down the row real quick and collected cards and took some pictures of people with their work so I could remember when I have the card, and go back to my computer and be like, okay, that's so-and-so to plan upcoming columns. But I explained to people who I was and asked their permission before I took pictures of them and their work. I always try to be really respectful about that. And now that I'm on the other side of the table and I'm kind of trying to sell my own work again, and I haven't done shows on a regular basis for, you know, a long time. It's been probably about eight or nine years. So... You know, it's just a whole different experience. And I just thought, oh, my gosh, you know, I, because I got really angry, you know. <laughs> I was just, I mean, I didn't scream at this person or anything. I just told her if she's going to take pictures at people's booths, she really needs to ask permission. You know, and I, there's been some men coming up and kind of like counting the pegs and their wives saying, you could make that. And it's true. So, you know, I'm sure they could. It's just kind of like it's amazing sometimes what people say when they come up to the booth. <laughs> so, so again, this whole experience just gives me so much respect for What all of you people out there do, make a living this way. It is such a blessing to be able to start to have some kind of revenue coming in that doesn't require you to work in an office all day. So thanks again to those of you who've supported what I've tried to do. And thanks to those of you who are at home thinking, oh my gosh, how many after shows is she going to dedicate to this? I'm really excited about my little loom business, but yeah, I'm I'm not going to make this a weekly update trying to think of what else I've been working on. My house is like a total, total disaster, and I really, really need to get a handle on that because it's made, if you can't find the boxes to ship, and it hasn't come to that point yet, but I can see it if this continues. I won't even be able to find the boxes to mail things out. So, yeah, I need to do a, a major excavation project here to get myself organized just so I can find my fabric when I have a free moment to make clothes or something. For the girls, I want to make some... Some back-to-school clothes, even though today was the first. Oh, that's another thing I didn't. Speaking of back-to-school, yeah, I just came from actually dropping my daughter off, and I had to actually leave to go pick her up. Today was Abby's first day of kindergarten, and she did great. I did great. No tears from either one of us. So very excited about that. I can't believe that my oldest is five now in in kindergarten, but here we are, and the youngest will be in preschool. First day of preschool is next Monday, so I will actually have some mornings free to just do my work during daylight hours and that will be really cool but I'm going to be glad to pick them up at noon because I do enjoy their company so anyway thanks again for tuning in to Craft Sanity and if um, you ever have any suggestions for upcoming shows I can I'm in a routine now where I can actually interview more people because I'm gonna crank these out I'm gonna try my best to get back on that weekly routine so feel free to send your suggestions along if you're local here in West Michigan, you have a suggestion for my art and craft column that runs in the press every Sunday or um, a TV segment that appears on Fridays. And you don't have to be local to make a suggestion about that because I'm always looking for things. I'm looking for some Halloween ideas and uh, Christmas is around the corner, so I'll be looking for some Christmas ideas too. Um, I always credit my sources, so I will credit you for the idea if you're the one who suggests something that I end up using. So feel free to send your ideas my way. And I'm going to be announcing, I've been delinquent at announcing the winners of some contests. So check the website this week to see a listing of the recent contest announcements that I'll have the winners posted. So I apologize for the delay on that. I will uh, get those up there so you're not left in suspense. Yeah, I think that's all I have right now. So go forth and be crafty, and I'll be back next week with another show. Take care.